Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another Futs on Film podcast. I'm Scott. I'm joined today by Drew. Roger me, rabbit. And Craig. <laughs> okay. <laughs> hello. <laughs> yes, as, as we perhaps tipped our hand there, we're gathered here today to take a butchers at two films that routinely vie for the top spot in any self-respecting list of British gangster movies. Both are more concerned with gangsters performing investigations, both refuse to sugarcoat the nefarious activities of the leads, and you could probably make a case for each film reflecting the mood of the decade it lead into. We are speaking, of course, of Get Carter, a firm favourite around these parts for many a year, and The Long Good Friday, which, despite the reputation it has garnered, so has so far been a stranger to me. So let's get that sorted and see if it's as good as it's cracked up to be. <laughs> <laughs> and indeed, if Get Carter is as good as we remember it to be. Speaking of which, I guess we may as well just start with Get Carter then. Based on Ted Lewis's novel Jack's Return Home, Get Carter from director Mike Hodges landed like a sledgehammer blow on the UK cinema scene of 1971. Not that gangster movies were anything new at the time, but up until that point, they had been largely cheeky, chappy and or slapstick affairs, played as much for laughs as for thrills. Hodge's vision for Get Carter seems to have been to redefine the genre for the post-flower power, diseased industrial landscape of a Britain in decline and push the boundaries of what was acceptable in the bleak, violent and sexually charged telling of the story of a London gangster returning home to Newcastle to investigate the death of his brother. It is safe to say he succeeded. Michael Caine is Jack Carter, the gangster in question, and his quest for answers as to the circumstances of his brother's death see him stalk the streets of a new castle in grim transition from vanishing point industrial tenement rows to brutalist concrete parking towers. You can have any colour you want in this movie, so long as it's grey, and let me tell you, that's as <laughs> upbeat as it's going to get. Amateur porn productions, slot machine empires and working men's clubs are the order of the day here. The clean lines of Jack's London fashion sense marking him out as an alien in his own hometown as he pieces together the faces and events that precipitated his brother's demise. Roping in locals as extras, Get Carter is a movie that is at once authentic yet fantastical. The dour faces of Newcastle's working class completely at odds with the flamboyance of its larger-than-life antagonists. The cast of characters can often be as camp as it is cruel, with the likes of Ian Hendry, a tragic figure of the British cinema scene, here sporting a completely inexplicable but awesome Scottish drawl, playing shifty chauffeur to playwright John Osborne <laughs> in his first big screen role as porno-producing kingpin Cyril Kinnear. As compelling as the supporting cast are, however, it's Kane who shocks the most, his Carter no longer carrying any trace of the man dubbed a Cockney Errol Flynn by the critics, as Jack works his way through Newcastle's criminal underworld, rekindling acquaintances and then snuffing them out when deemed necessary. Angry outbursts aside... The only clue we get that Carter may actually once have been a functioning human comes with a solitary moment's tearful recognition of his niece, or is it his daughter, in one of Kinnear's porn films, whereupon suddenly the circumstances of his brother's murder come into focus. As a performance, it's a far cry from Charlie Croker, and British audiences were not prepared for Kane's willingness to play at such a sharp tangent to type. Only with hindsight did the movie come to be appreciated in fullness, and for me this was, and still remains, a formative cinematic experience. I don't know that Kane has ever been better, and I, in fact, I don't know that British gangster movies have ever been better. Come to think of it, 
I don't think British movies have ever been better, <laughs> period. So much of Get Carter informed the aesthetic of British cinema and the broader culture, both directly and indirectly, that throughout my many watches, I've never once been left wanting. From Roy Budd's iconic score to Wolfgang's... Uh, oh, God, I knew I was in for trouble here. Wolfgang's Sashitsky's starkly efficient cinematography. <laughs> I find there are so many things to appreciate in Carter, and there's never really been a time when I find myself not in the mood to watch it. The dialogue, quoted in schoolyards up and down the country for decades now, is just the icing on the cake and there are lines which have practically joined common parlance. One can only wonder how many brawls must have started across the course of the last five decades with the words, <laughs> you're a big man, but you're in bad shape. <laughs> it's by no means a feel-good movie, but as a reminder that British cinema can be both entertaining and uncompromising, Get Carter is certainly to be celebrated. There can only be a handful of movies that feel as vital a half-century after the fact as they did the year of their release, but Carter can claim its place in that pantheon quite assuredly, at least as far as I'm concerned. If being British means being miserable, then by God can we claim to be efficient at it, and here <laughs> is the glorious evidence of that. Yeah, I can't quite work out how this is not a black and white film, because it Basically a black and white film somehow shot in colour. <laughs> <laughs> yes, somewhere somewhere between that and sepia lies Get Carter. <laughs> uh, it's strange that you mention Michael Caine having been described as the Cockney Errol Flynn because as far as I'm concerned, Michael Caine was, is and always will be Michael Caine. He, he's so very much Michael Caine mm. that he can't really be anybody else. Mm. Uh, it's a strange, strange analogy to make that one. I'm quoting uh, directly... I think no, no more no. in international press. Yeah, as as I think to to appreciate, I know what you're saying. I think we we have a very individual impression of Michael Caine, and I don't think necessarily he's quite as iconic outside of Britain as he is here. But he's he's an institution for us, right? And this is this is one of the key reasons why that is. Surely, oh, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Alfie established him as a playboy, and then the Epicus file came before this, and they're, they're, I think. Both the other Len Dayton films were before Get Carter. So I mean, certainly I know Funeral in Berlin name. was, yeah, yeah, and yeah, it's a it's a completely different film from the Italian job. But this is the kind of I don't know the Ur Michael Caine almost. Hmm. Uh, I agree that it's his best role, and I think I mean, while Harry Brown is not a good film, like, had he not made this film, I don't think he would have made Harry Brown. It's like you would never have bought him in that role without having first established him in this. I'm not sure what my point is there. Uh, That's right. I've, yeah. you've, uh, if nothing else, you've reminded me of Harry Brown, which I have still yet to see. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry about that. Please don't. It's not good. <laughs> Scott will attest to that. It's a, one of those terrible Daily Mail-esque films like Cherry Tree Lane. Mm. It, it's not a good film. Don't watch it. No, I vaguely remember your view of it at the time, because I think, was it not yourself that reviewed it on the old website, Drew? Maybe it's it was more Scott. Scott, but yeah. I don't remember. But we both saw it, and I think we were of a similar opinion. I think it was probably on our podcast, actually, rather than on the website. Mm. Yes. We both agreed, no. Yes. No, <laughs> yes, I have little time for such Daily Mail-type films. Uh, but yeah, uh, I I can't remember not having watched Get Carter. Yeah. And and I don't, I don't know when I first watched it, but I would be fairly confident that it was probably because of you, Craig. Not really? I mean, yeah, well, all three of us have been friends for a very mm. long time, so mm. there's certainly plenty of opportunity for that. But And I can I associate this film with you more than anybody else. Oh, wow. Uh, and like the... Oh, that almost brings a tear to my eye. That's like <laughs> the best compliment I've had in the last 41 years, Drew. 
And curiously, the quote you mentioned is the one I most specifically um, <laughs> associate with you, which is like, you know, um, this for me, this is a full-time job following on with the bit that you quoted. Not, and you know, Cliff Brumby, that I can't ever think of anybody other than Alf Roberts <laughs> from Coronation Street. Yeah. <laughs> International listeners may well be baffled at this point, but yes, Alf <laughs> Roberts from Coronation Street. Oh, have you talked about international listeners being baffled to just wait till I, I'm talking about their next film? Uh, <laughs> to be honest, I might leave you two baffled if your memory isn't as good as mine, but uh, yeah, which I know it's not, so there we go. Uh, <laughs> He's not wrong. Uh, yeah, so I don't remember having, really don't remember not having watched Get Cartoon. It's like you, Craig, it's one of those films I can always come back to. It's it's not a particularly pleasant experience, but it's not one of those like hugely depressive mm. type of movie experiences either. Yeah, Michael Caine is just... I think the fact he's such an efficient hard man mm. that that one scene where he's crying is all the more effective for her, mm. yet doesn't seem out of place. Mm. It's just a very, very rewarding film. It's just... It's like... One of the best British films of all time, almost certainly, yes. I'm not sure about the, again, I was very hesitant to say anything is the best of anything. Yeah. But it's up there. And honestly, I, you've said pretty much everything I would say about it, so I maybe we'll pass on to Scott now. Maybe he has something slightly more original to say than I've just spurted out there. Yes, boringly, I'm also just basically going to agree it's a hell of a film, a hell of a role for Michael Caine. As you say, probably never been better. The whole kind of cold efficiency of this character really should be entirely off-putting, yet somehow isn't. Uh, and it does make the kind of more emotional outputs, as you say, just a hell of a lot more impactful. Um, the score is incredible. Love it. I'd missed that for a long time. It was great to hear those little chords starting up again. It's like, yes, this... So it's like coming Doesn't it home. just feel like putting on like uh, your favourite pair of slippers or something? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought so, so much. Because it's been in quite a while since I'd watched this, but like mm. the, mm-hmm. even the first few notes of that goes, oh, oh yes, yes. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. This yeah. feels right. Yeah, 2020 is not so bad after all. <laughs> I've always appreciated about this stuff from what I was reading earlier. Apparently, it took a bit of stick for this at the time. Is People were saying it was a, like a complicated or sort of difficult plot to follow. And it's not really, but it is something that you need to pay attention to. You need to remember who yeah. characters are in relation to each other. It's not particularly convoluted or difficult, but it does reward actually paying close attention to it. And I don't see how you could not pay close attention to this. It's it's a captivating film. Just uh, terrific stuff. It's... Yeah, puzzling that it was uh, not all that well received at the time. I suppose uh, you just don't know what you've got till it's gone. But yeah, um, certainly well lives up to the reputation it's gathered in the years since. I think you can understand, though, can't you, for audiences at the time, that this was so far removed from what they'd experienced up to this point. And by yeah. today's standards, in a lot of respects, it's, it seems pretty tame, right? Because although it has moments of violence uh, in terms of how violence is depicted on screen now, it doesn't feel mm-hmm. particularly graphic, but I think it feels particularly real because of yeah. that. It's a single or maybe a couple of knife stabs at best. It's, you know, people aren't getting their heads blown off left, right and centre. You know, it's not Gerard Butler uh, shooting infinite Koreans <laughs> on the White House lawn with like uh, perfect headshots every time, uh, you know, uh, at a rate of about 30 per minute. Um, it's, it's really sort of efficient, um, but also... I- uncompromising and sort of very realistic, which I don't know that that doesn't come from... Am I right in saying, am I confusing Mike Hodges with Mike Lee uh, Lee when I say that he came from a documentarian background? 
Am I right about that? Was it Mike Hodges, who the director of this, who had previously done, was it Wicker's World or World in Action or something like that? He'd worked on... I, I should do probably do my research beforehand. I want to say that's the case, though, because, you know, the, the, this has such a sort of down-to-earth, realistic kind of grit about it that just screams... I don't think it's Mike Hodges. This was his first film. Um, mm. No, but I mean, oh, like, in terms of he'd worked in... Had he not worked in TV before? In uh, I don't think that he'd worked in TV, but not on the thing you're saying, so I don't think so. All right, okay, I may be confusing him with someone else then. Uh, but it's got a very documentarian feel about it, and the fact that they've roped in locals to help just sort of amplifies the effect of it. I don't know. It's kind of timeless, apart from the invention of mobile phones and uh, sort of just omnipresent CCTV. There's nothing about this film that wouldn't translate to the modern day. It's just, it's really weird. I feel weird saying that this is something so bleak as this could be comfort food mm-hmm. but I don't know that there's another film, there might be a handful of other films that I would come back to as frequently as I do this film just for comfort but I don't know, there's certainly not another film there's not another film that I would more willingly come back to than Get Carter, if that makes sense and there's just something, I don't know and, and I wonder how it played for international audiences because this is one of those films where I don't know that you can separate as a Brit I don't know that I can separate myself from the Britishness of it. I think that there's just, it's really in the DNA of this film and I can't really explain it. I can't imagine how an international audience would view this. But I understand, is this not one of the films that Quentin Tarantino cited as the reason that he got into filmmaking? Or am I inventing that as well? Is this just going to be an episode where I pull stuff out of my ass without, without being I able to give citation? I should know that, having researched Tarantino for our last episode, but I, yeah. I don't recall. But it, Tarantino's got so many influences. I yeah. don't know any one particular thing. I can't imagine you pin down a single thing, but I'm sure this is film is, is one of the films that he's mentioned as being one of the principal reasons that he got into, got into film. And it's just so... It is just so British, and I think one of the things about it that appeals most to me is that it's a gangster film, but it's not about, although the central character comes from London, it's not about London, because as a British audience... Yeah, as a British audience, and again, this is something you won't appreciate necessarily internationally, but we are so used to everything being London-centric in this country. Everything of significance happens within the circumference of the M25. infuriating. Yeah, to have something as seismic as this come along and be focused on... You in quotation marks the other part of the country, which is to say yes. up north. And although it's not in Scotland, I think probably I don't know if I'm right in saying this. I speak only for myself, but I certainly feel an affinity for this because it's northern, and it mm-hmm. it's southern, Craig. Well, you're all Scottish, so this is very much southern. Let, <laughs> let's stop that London-centric <laughs> nonsense that somehow Yorkshire and Northumberland yeah. is the north when it's the, the north. south. Exactly, but you know what I'm saying. It's like we can. It feels like something that you can take ownership of, and I just recognise the bleakness and the greyness of it. And there's some sort of perverse comfort in that. Am I the only one that feels that? I, I get that. I mean, honestly, it's just it's the fact it's not London is refreshing. As much oh. as talking of British gangster films, look at something like the Guy Ritchie stuff. They're so London, and it's nice for them not to be there. It's not about Land Rovers and Essex boys. <laughs> that, that's very for much the thing about in, British gangster films, though, isn't it? I mean, almost, well, not all of them, but most of them are capers. They've got the cheeky cockney yeah. chappies, and that's, I think that's again, if I remember rightly, why Michael Caine was keen to take this role. It's very much against that stereotype, yeah. and that's what yeah. makes it special. Up it's, until this point in British cinema, it's basically been plays on Robin Hood, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Essentially, gangsters weren't people you should be afraid of. They were, you know, 
they were a bit of a bit of a mad Tiki lad. Chappies. That love their mums. Do you know what I mean? Kind of as long as yeah. as long as you don't put your nose in their business, they're not going to hurt the ordinary man on the street. Um, yeah. And then along comes Strange Jack coming after like the area of the Cray twins. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then along comes Jack Carter, like an atom bomb going off in the northeast uh, of <laughs> England, and um, and you know that's all she wrote. Uh, it's just uh, I can't think of another film this with the exception of obviously something like Lawrence of Arabia, which remains my favourite film of all time. But I actually feel. I can't believe that we didn't have Get Carter in the conversation, or at least that I didn't have it in the conversation, and I presume you guys probably feel broadly the same, but when we launched this new podcast with our favourite films episodes and stuff, it's one of those where I come back and at any time I watch it, I think, oh, God almighty, why didn't I, why didn't I <laughs> yeah. mention that? Yeah, well, to be honest, like, I struggle. Get Carter for me wouldn't have been in that conversation. Mm. I like it a lot, but clearly not as much as you, but I like mm. it a lot. But, um, but I, I had so much difficulty paring down any sort of list to get the f- relatively few number of films for that. So let, let's just mm. not... Um, let's not even go there. Uh, <laughs> we get that particular conversation because that was so difficult to begin with. To touch on your point about like international listeners and the whole London thing, just a note for international listeners, the United Kingdom does not begin and end with London despite what most media and mm. most news stories would have you believe yeah. that there are other parts of it. Yeah, I was just going to say the whole uh, the whole sort of uh, low down, dirty uh, aspect of this film. Right, this is going to sound bizarre, but since I went back to when did we discuss this? The last time we recorded, we decided that we were going to talk about this film. Right, so it's probably yes. the first time I've watched it in three, four years for argument's sake, say. And we had that conversation that we were going to do this in this episode. And I've spent the last week, because I'm not Windows-based, because I'm uh, Mac-based, I've been looking for tools to do video conversion to... Remember, Drew, much as I evangelise Minidisc, and I have a hole in my heart for Minidisc, I also have a hole in my... I miss Minidisc. Minidisc was great. Well, I've got a similar hole in my heart for Super Video CD, right? (laughs) And... Uh, this is Super Video CD brought me my first viewing of uh, Kiki's delivery service. I also miss Super Video CD. Didn't it just when I had done my own rip of that and turned up at your house with it on two separate CDs and we watched it on a that's the one like yeah. a fourteen inch portable CRT TV, and that's exactly where I'm going with Spot this. On. Yeah, I, I want to. I don't want to watch <laughs> Get Carter on a on a fifty five inch four K TV. Um, in, I know there's not a 4K, but at, at 1080p, upscaled. I want to watch Get Carter on SVCD on a, a on a CRT TV, preferably. <laughs> you a, want the viewing experience to be as grim as the film itself. I want the viewing, <laughs> and I spent the last week trying to get my head around the tools that I would need to go back because I used to do my own SVCD stuff because it's an aesthetic that I just love so much. I don't even own a CRT TV anymore, but I've got like a, in the garage, I've got one of those terrible little 720p um, uh, LCD flat screens with a built-in uh, DVD player. Mm-hmm. And I thought that'll do the job. If I can just get this down to SVCD resolution, I think that's the optimal way to watch Get Carter. <laughs> I really do. I honestly do. I don't think, I don't want this to be remastered because I think it would, this is one of the only films I can think of where remastering it would be doing it a disservice. I want to downgrade it because that's the aesthetic and that's the feel. And that is what Jack Carter would want. And I want to say. <laughs> on a cold evening, wrapped in a blanket, in front of a 14-inch 4x3 CRT TV, watching this at 420p. 
That's what I, I want. The aesthetic. Do you also want an outhouse and a chamber pot instead of actual indoor plumbing? Um, if that, if those are the accoutrements that would have to come with that viewing experience, then yes, there's no doubt about it. And the more I've thought about this film since I rewatched it earlier this week uh, for the podcast and just the affection for it, I don't know what it is about. I don't know if it's just because 2020 has been so bleak, but like I do, I'm. I'm I've had this conversation recently with someone else as well. I'm not afraid of death. I don't care about the prospect of death. The only thing that disappoints me about death or the prospect of death will be that I won't have another chance to watch this film, I think. Uh, when, uh, I'm afraid I forget which of the two of you said it now. I think it was you, Scott, in your introduction, but you were talking about each of these films kind of representing their decade. Mm-hmm. I thought actually, yeah, not just reps in a decade. Get Carter does feel like a very much twenty twenty film in a number of respects. <laughs> yes. uh, well, as as does yeah. the other film we'll talk about as well. But yeah, absolutely. If you want to talk about just the bleakness of it and the hopelessness, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just a. We're going back quite a bit now to when you spoke at this, Craig. But you mentioned about the the weapons in it too. Mm. Um, I'm not talking about the impact now, I'm back to just like yeah, bits about the film actually. Like, so the fact that weapons aren't a big part of it, there's mm. one shootout um, and then there's the shooting at the end, plus basically a weapon or guns used a couple of times just as a threat, but mm-hmm. nothing more than that. And I was like, um, it's like to leave me alone for a bit. Mm-hmm. I like that. You know, 100%. If, if you just got people shooting left and right, it gets really, really dull. And also, though, it doesn't actually affect Carter at all because when that woman's driven off, when Geraldine Moffat's driven off the mm. the edge of the pier mm. um, in the boot of a car, he's basically completely passive. Completely but, dispassionate. I love it. Mm. It's yeah, reprehensible, but, like, but I love it. The film does actually have wee hints of consequences to other people of his actions, which I like, because yeah. there's, that, there's one, that one. And the one which I didn't actually remember... And maybe it's because it's not seen in quite a while, but th- when Alf Roberts from Coronation Street is thrown <laughs> off of the multi-story car park, he lands in the car mm-hmm. and it kills the driver and there are two children in the back being taken away and badly injured. I hadn't yeah. really clocked that before. Yeah. But it's like, yeah, so it's like, he doesn't care. But like other people are suffering from his actions, which is kind of interesting that they actually had that in there, but mm-hmm. it didn't, they don't draw your attention to it and they don't actually have the car to react to it. But it's there, which I quite appreciate. It's interesting that you bring that part up, Drew, because this was the first time that I'd correlated that with something that happens afterwards. And I don't think it's necessarily intentional. I'd maybe be surprised if it was, but I drew the the correlation that that happens. And you're saying about the kids in the car and the consequence of that. And you know later on the ferry ride where he comes back into the the dock and the guys are waiting for him uh, to take him out. He there's a moment where he is on the ferry and he's watching. I think it's a, a, a mother and her two children, and he's kind of just like quietly observing. And I sort of wondered what. And it's the first time that I've actually drawn the correlation between that and the the thing having happened just previous, and essentially having just orphaned these two children. I wonder why Mike Hodges felt the need to, or certainly whether he or Kane or a collaboration of the two felt the need to make a point of that in the ferry afterwards about him sitting observing these two kids on the ferry. And this is the first time I've watched the film and I've wondered, oh, is that because uh, he used Alf Roberts to kill 
<laughs> these two kids' dads. <laughs> and now the next day, he's seeing these two kids and he's thinking, oh, yeah, look at them, so happy with a parent. I've just deprived someone of that. But like anything else in this film, uh, he's so dispassionate about it that the Carter doesn't give anything away. He could be feeling remorse, we don't know. Um, he, doesn't he, that happen before that, though? Does it? Yeah, because he's still got that triumph sunbeam at that point and he's driving his Cortina later when he goes to kill Cliff Newby. Bumby, rather. Are you sure? Uh, I'm sure I, yeah, pretty sure. I think he's looking at that um, that family because he's just seen what's happened to the person that may be his daughter, mm. and certainly as his niece. Um, I think it's that. I'm pretty sure you've got your chrono- <laughs> chronology. Oh, God. Maybe <laughs> Chron- I have. Weird I think you've got your chronology on there. Mm. But, um, but certainly, yeah, I'm aware of the bit you mean when he's looking at them, and I think it's more to do with Dorvin. It would make more sense if it was to do with Dorvin, because I don't yeah. think you see Carter, see what happens to um, Cliff Bumbages. He tits over the side, but as far as I can recall, God, have I got you that? don't see him looking at it. Have I got that arse over tit then? I'm pretty certain you do, because yeah. when he when he comes back, when he drives up to the multi-story car park and the two architects are there, and he says, that's a madman, he's back in the Ford Cortina, yep. where has he been driving the Triumph Sunbeam at that point? That is doubly and weird. That's what was parked on the side of the the pier. That is doubly weird that you've brought that up as a point then, because that is that was like a formed. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, you've just freaked me out a bit now. <laughs> Maybe I've had my entropy reversed. Um, I mean, it's possible I'm wrong. No, you're probably not. I would not. listen if I were a betting man. You made the comment about people's memories earlier, Drew. If I were a betting man, I'd bet on you in this one. Um, but yeah, I just think it's absolutely remarkable how immediate and how I don't know. Contemporary is not the word, but relevant. This film still feels after a half century. I can't think what the other film is there. There are films. There are films older than this that I still hold in great reverence, but I can't think of one that still resonates as much as this or deeply as this. I don't mean in the sense that it resonates deeply for me because I'm a London gangster who's returned to Newcastle to investigate the death <laughs> of my, my straight edge brother. I mean, in terms of just there's something so essential about this film and immediate about this film, and it still feels like it. Again, like I say, apart from the invention of the the mobile phone and the proliferation of CCTV, which would obviously rule out any of the activity in this film, this film feels like it could have been made yesterday. It's remarkable. It's absolutely remarkable. Yeah, in many respects, I think the the one thing that really stuck out to me is being some. It's not so much, you know, a lot of films now don't work because any tension of like not being able to communicate with somebody mm. isn't going to work unless you have some really weird fudge that a mobile phone yeah. is working like lack of signals a bit dull yeah but no the bit that stood out to me actually is on the beach at the end where mm-hmm. they're just dumping crap in the sea yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that more than anything was the bit that stood out to me as being like just so out of time yeah. for now well, i don't <laughs> know what struck me when I was watching that scene these days was um, I vaguely remember watching the Get Carter remake with Sylvester Stallone. It was a bad idea at the time. It was a bad idea to even remember it. But yeah, just the concept of taking a film as bleak. I mean, nothing sums up Get Carter better than two people chasing each other over sewage-laden, polluted 
beaches with crawling over sewage pipes with <laughs> leading up to a coal dumping facility just just dropping it offshore that pretty much is get carter in a nutshell taking that and moving it to last uh, la i think it was and giving it putting any sort of sunshine anywhere near the story of get carter is entirely wrong am i right because I, I i have purposely avoided that movie <laughs> and you can imagine why yes uh, and i don't know why you subjected yourself to it scott <laughs> but i know enough about it to say am i correct in saying that sylvester stallone delivers the you're a big man but you're in bad shape line to michael kane in that remake i don't remember it that well because Um, i'm pretty sure that's the case i'm sure i've read that and i don't even (laughs) i don't want to talk about it let alone imagine it i can't (laughs) understand or fathom or even begin to uh, reconcile uh, yes. my, my feelings about why that is something that someone would have done yes. or crucially why Kane would have wanted anything to do with that yes I imagine it was the uh, the but, but, uh, a truckload of money and he wanted well, to buy a new house listen, the Jaws man, 3 excuse it, that be? I know but that more than anything it still feels like I know to remake your own work it's yeah. like oh, that more than anything that feels like an act of sedition or something yeah. That's I'm not sure Michael Kane should be forgiven for that but <laughs> at the end of the day He's Michael Caine. <laughs> you can't help it. From memory, Get Carter is one of the, another one of these films. If you'd called it literally anything else, it would probably have just been okay. But it's just the uh, the affront of putting that name on this. Uh, yep. <laughs> a bit of a reputation that it probably didn't deserve, but yes. But again, yes. it's the efficiency. Even yeah. the title's efficient. Yeah. Even it tells you everything you need to know, almost. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's actually the the title's so much better than the original work it's based on, which is a kind of yeah. naff title. Oh, it's the most anodyne title for something you yeah, can possibly imagine, nothing, isn't, isn't it? it? Yeah, it really is a nothing. And from what I understand, it's um, it's an interesting enough work of literature, and I didn't realise that that author, what was his name, Ted? Uh, Bundy. Ted Bundy, yeah, <laughs> Ted Lewis. From what I understand, actually, um, he was a, a fairly decent writer. And for some reason, I've I've not pursued. Perhaps as we're recording this, I will look to, <laughs> to torrent an EPUB of uh, <laughs> of uh, Jack's Return Home. But it's not a title that really sells it to me. Um, <laughs> kind of, I kind of want to, uh, I kind of want to investigate. But by all by all accounts, it's a, a fairly well regarded author and a fairly well regarded work of, of its genre. But I just think as a movie, this is just a weird... It's almost like a rite of passage. And one of those films that I really, really hope at least one of my kids grows up to be or to have like a a pronounced interest in cinema because this is one of the short list of films that I would want to show them when, you know, of an age, obviously. Not now, at seven and four. I don't think they're quite ready for it yet. But it's one of those films that I really look forward to sort of um, introducing them to and I hope that it still feels relevant to them somehow although I'm not sure why I would wish that level of bleakness and despair <laughs> upon my own children oh, I've given myself a just, bit to unpack there <laughs> uh, just that it doesn't really follow on anything through what Titler said I was thinking about the legacy of this film and whether mm. it has any in terms of gangster films and stuff certainly mm. potential uh, legacy in other gangster films it's quite interesting that one of the actors in this is the mother of Sam and Dan Houser. Really? Really, yeah. Geraldine Moffat is Sam and Dan Houser's mother. Oh, is she the one who played um, the drunk that, oh god, what's her name that first appears at Kinnear's house? Oh, what's her name? Yep, that's her, yeah. You are, you are shitting me. 
nope, Sam and Dinehouser's mother. Isn't that <laughs> There's another woman with an under... Uh, her accent's all over the place. It's it kind really of George at the start, but then it's mostly Scottish and, and she's a, from Nottingham. Yeah, that's... But yeah, Glenda. Yeah, um, Glenda, yes, that's what I'm looking for. Yeah, Sam, Sam and Dan, Dan Houser's mum. That's quite interesting, isn't it? Like, cause Wow. Gangster stuff. That mm. is food for thought. That's amazing. That is genuinely... I want to read more about that now. Wow. That's just kind of like a weird... All of a sudden, that's bridged... Uh, well, let's say GTA... Let's call it 1997 or something. That's just like bridged like a 30 year gap somehow <laughs> and all of a sudden given this film sort of more immediacy that is super interesting she even has an uncredited voice role i think it's just a small one in um, gta 5 as mrs phillips i'm guessing trevor's mum i don't remember now <gasps> yeah actually mrs Miss phillips is trevor's mum isn't she so yeah she's um, the voice of trevor's mum in gta 5 no <laughs> yep <laughs> Oh my god, that makes me want to reinstall that now. <laughs> PlayStation app, here we go. That's mental. I mean, it's got very little to do with what we're talking about, but there's something really sort of fundamentally just... That's like an inception moment. And I don't know why it ought not to be, but that's just that's just some sort of crazy, amazing cultural, uh, cultural link to... Oh god, that feels like something's come full circle and I don't even understand what it is yet. Yeah, I mean... Those the GTA games are obviously much more influenced by, I guess, like American gangster stuff and the Godfather yeah. type of things in particular. But still, the fact that their mother was in Get Carter, the, the seminal British gangster film, and then yeah, that's that's really quite interesting. Hundred percent, it feels like that. Uh, that honestly, this might be the greatest gift you've. I mean, other than the gift of friendship, Drew, this might be the greatest <laughs> single gift you've given me. This feels like you've just dropped that in casually at the end of a conversation before we move on to another film. But that feels like for some reason. And there's been like a thing missing a, a missing <laughs> link between us and this film like for all we can appreciate it and it feels like there's something here i know it there's something more that i'm just not i'm just not rationalizing i'm not capable of comprehending and now you drop in that she's the she's one of the characters in this film is the mum of the housers that's <laughs> just mental and i don't even feel equipped to comment on why <laughs> Jeez, just on a just on an instinctual level, that feels like seismic. But right, yeah. I'll, sorry, carry on. I'm I'm literally just you guys talk amongst yourselves. I'm trying to. I'm going back through the PlayStation app here to reinstall GTA Five. Okay, so we're all very much on the same page with Get Carter then. But from hints that we've had throughout the evening, I suspect that may not be the case with the next film. So let's move on, shall we? For a long time, I associated Bob Hoskins only with Mermaids, Super Mario Brothers, EGADs, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and mostly, due no doubt to the ubiquity, <laughs> British Telecom's It's Good to Talk adverts. Did you know where I was going with that, Craig? <laughs> oh, Seems like you did. I've got a little blue gas flame coming from my thumb as we speak. Oh, I had a few of in British Gas adverts as well, but I couldn't remember for certain. I, I knew it was in the It's Good to Talk BT ones. Oh, yes. No, sorry. I was off. I wasn't even paying attention to it. Yeah, in my Thank head, you. I was just, you were talking about British Gas. Don't you just love being in control? Yeah, I can picture that quite clearly now. Three blue flames that have done like a lighter. Yeah, yeah that's it. Um, after those, it was Shane Meadows' excellent 1997 film, 24-7. Which you introduced and me to, Drew. Thank you very much. We watched, that. we watched that round at yours, as I recall. Sounds about right. Mm -hmm. 
and an affectionate send-up by Adam Buxton, Joe Corners' old Bobo Oskins, scruffle me nuts. He's <laughs> off to Stepney to aggle his brush. The one thing I never associated him with was being a gangster in what is considered to be one of the seminal British crime films. Therefore, having thus far avoided seeing John Frenzy Mackenzie's The Long Good Friday, or indeed knowing a single thing about it, I was excited to see it. Hoskins Harold Shand is a proper East End gangster who, in Thatcher's Britain, dreams of himself as a great property mogul and tycoon, ready to make a killing when the Olympics come to London in 1988. The Olympic Games that year were, of course, in Seoul, so I'm not sure how that was going to work, but (laughs) perhaps London was the favourite for the award at the time. (laughs) To do this, he needs crooked politicians, which he has, and investment, which he has not. To this end, he invites a mafia boss, Alphaville's Eddie Constantine, from New York to the UK capital for a deal. Despite Shan's efforts to keep the meeting secret though, it seems someone is aware, as a number of Shan's employees and businesses are targeted with bombs and a stabbing in an apparent effort to disrupt his dealings. Eager to keep the mafia in the dark so as not to jeopardise the deal, though they find out anyway as they're apparently clairvoyant, Shan instructs his goons to turn over the manor and bring in every likely suspect that may have dared challenge him. It never occurs to him, nor the audience, and why would it, it's stupid, that his unexpected enemy is the IRA, who blame him for a number of their members being killed by the police on the same night that one of Shan's employees delivered money to them in Belfast. Warned against confronting the IRA, Shan nevertheless attempts to deal with them, leaving us the rather unsatisfying prospect of the film ending with either the gangsters winning or the IRA winning, and goes with the worst option. Gangster films are always a difficult sell. The characters are not good people. We shouldn't want them to succeed. We shouldn't be invested in them. Therefore, we have to be given compelling reason to do so, and that's often the charisma of the main actor. Witness the very lengthy discussion we just had about Get Carter. And, in The Long Good Friday, I started off quite prepared to engage with Bob Hoskins' Harold Shand. But, more or less right from the start, Shand, and several other characters, are casually, and unnecessarily, it adding nothing to the story nor the character, racist and homophobic, and I checked out. Now, given that our heroes are gangsters, their bigotry ought to come quite far down the list of concerns, certainly far after are murderers, but for me it killed all interest in them. Mm. Here may be a good place to mention the related illustrated fact that the film's original name was The Paddy Factor. Mm. (laughs) I was hoping someone would bring that up. (laughs) There's nothing racist about that. (laughs) No, not at all. Uh, All of that rendered me pretty detached for the whole film, leaving me instead... Paddy Factor, (laughs) Sorry, I spent a good five minutes laughing about that earlier today and then quietly forgot about it again and then you brought it up, <laughs> which I'm glad you did. Sorry, Drew. I'm just imagining that <laughs> a game show introduced by Gordon Burns. Just not, like set in Ireland. It's just the notion of like Harold Chan knocks about going, there's something we've forgotten here, lads. <laughs> something we've not thought about. And then someone just goes, you know what you've forgotten, Governor? You've forgotten the Paddy Factor. <laughs> 
What is the paddy fight? Well, knick knack, paddy whack. Whack those paddies. Paddy whack would have been even better. <laughs> the paddy whack. Where is the paddy factor? Sorry, it's just such an obviously shockingly bad title for us. Oh, Dave. Sorry, Drew. Sorry, Drew. No, you're, you're quite welcome. It's quite, um, not, not quite welcome, quite... Oh, you are welcome to speak. That's fine, but um, no problem. Uh, all of that, though, rendered me pretty detached for the whole film, leaving me instead focusing dispassionately on its technical merits, which are fine, and its story, which is poor, and wondering why this film has the reputation that it does, given that I was thoroughly underwhelmed by it. Mm. Old Bobo himself is pretty good. It's hard to imagine how the original producers, ITC Films, thought that dubbing Hoskins with a Wolverhampton accent was a good idea. Uh, And his chemistry with Helen Mirren as his girlfriend Victoria is likewise good. Though that does bring me to one of the greatest disappointments. Originally written as a more typical gangster's mall, Mirren pressed for a rewrite to make Victoria a smarter, more capable character. And Victoria's intelligence, assuredness and savvy make her more of a foil and partner for Shand. But she's still not given a great deal of agency. Mm. This genre in particular tends to be a sausage fest, but Helen Mirren is a formidable screen presence. Mm. And I got to the end of The Long Good Friday wishing that it had been a film that starred her as a gangland boss instead. Drew, I've made a note here, sorry to interrupt, but I've made a note here um, of the fact that Helen Mirren, again, yes, like having her character punched up, but you still have the distinct impression that she has still shifted down at least one gear, if not two, so that everybody else can keep up with her. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I I want to see Helen Mirren as a gangland boss. I think she would be fantastic. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, Uh, not that that would have solved the film's greatest ill in that the story is not engaging. For about the first half, I was mildly interested by the mystery of who was attacking Shand, but the unveiling of Charlie from Casualty, because Lisa tonight is largely referring to people as their iconic characters rather than their um, actors' names. Um, Charlie from Casualty as the traitor was pretty easily guessable from the start, and the introduction of the IRA was, frankly, baffling. 21st best British film of all time? What a palaver. <laughs> Google me nips. Smack me behind for just two and six. You're having a bloody laugh, ain't ya? <laughs> a bit of a disappointment, this one. Um, and I'm not sure I've got all that much more to add about. Maybe, maybe we're not on different pages then, that's good. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I, I think it... Uh, what I, I mentioned in the intro, it does seem some of the 80s somewhat, and uh, it's definitely going for that kind of Thatcherian spiv-like entrepreneurial spirit if you'd made this film a few films later uh, a few years later sorry you would just be doing the same thing but without the gangsters uh, just have them as being property developers who would be expected to be just as corrupt as these guys are um, but no I've got a lot of the same problems uh, I quite like Bob Hoskins uh, in this for the most part um, same with her, Helen Mirren definitely as you say a better character and a better actor I was for the most part buying Bob Hoskins even though it is surely the most parodied aspect. I mean, <laughs> this film at this point feels like a parody of itself just because so many other films have made parodies of this, like Guy Ritchie's entire career for the most part. Um, yeah, and also <laughs> just uh, talking of Guy Ritchie, Scott, before you go on, it's like I, I was totally aware of the fact that I'm um, you up the Natchez Airy from Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels, mm-hmm. and yeah. Bricktop from... Uh, 
well, he's in lock stock as well, but mm. uh, Alan Ford picked up from statues <laughs> in there. Like he's clearly influenced Guy Ritchie yeah, a lot. That, although Guy yeah. Ritchie's films are considerably better, mm. absolutely um, more capers than this one. Rob is just couldn't. I was taking him seriously for the most part. I wasn't as bothered by the kind of more woke aspects of or anti woke aspects of his character. I mean, he's a gangster. I don't really expect him to be a uh, enlightened, <laughs> accepting person. I didn't mind that so much. What I did mind was the fact that you're building up your entire film on the premise that he's this clever, savvy gangster who knows the area, he knows all this character, he knows what's happening, he knows what's going on with everything, he controls London and then he kills two IRA members and then well, that's we solved the IRA problem then <laughs> there's no more of them around <laughs> the British military, someone, someone even alludes to the fact, like listen, yeah. the British military have been grappling with this for decades mate, why do you think you can it's, mop it up yeah, in five minutes? It's the traitor right before uh, apparently oh, I was watching the, the making of this and they're talking about how they had uh, the Harold Shand accidentally kills Charlie from casualty. He accidentally broke yeah. a bottle in half and repeatedly mm. accidentally stabbed him in the throat. I, I watched that same <laughs> making right of today and had the same uh, same thought about that, Drew. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was a ridiculous thing to say, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's right before that scene that um, Charlie from casualty... And how the name you will ever forever be known by <laughs> Charlie from Gadgety, um had said like yeah the British army have been running from them in Belfast for 10 years mm, and they yeah. haven't dealt with them what are you going to do so, sorry, we both very much interrupted you. My apologies. Sorry, so that, that is so one of the major points where like his character just like falls off the rails. It's like, well, this, that's just silly. And the same thing with Helen Mirren's character to a point who's like calm, composed for all of it, and then at one point, Bob Hoskins shouts at her and she starts crying. It's like that that does not fit in with anything like the rest of your character. No, I thought that was yeah. incredibly out of character because yeah. she's so composed up to that yeah. point. Mm. And I'll even believe why is it like he goes to he doesn't hit her. He kind of pushes her down, um, and you clearly he's not that sort of gangster. He's not like a, a wife beater or anything, and they don't have that sort of relationship. So that he, if he checks himself, like, oh, this has all really gotten to me, fine. But the fact she's in fudgy tears after that, yeah. mm. it doesn't match with anything else. It comes from out of nowhere, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. And there's a few things in this film. That's very much the, the my criticism of this film is a lot of it just comes out of nowhere. Um, the whole like I, the IRA. Yeah, the IRA thing. I mean, I can. I can see it, it does make for like an interesting enough hook to drag you through because you don't know who these characters are in the first place. You don't know why these characters are. You don't even know where, um, if I remember rightly, where the, this guy's going in the first place to hand over the cash that kind of kicks this whole thing off. Um, yeah, it's not obvious yeah. that's Belfast. Yeah, and, and uh, that that's fine, but the answer of it being diary is just weird because it's not a gangster thing and it doesn't make a lot of sense really. If you had some other answer rather than the IRA, although of course then you couldn't call it the Paddy Factor, but then <laughs> if you did, this would probably be a stronger film for me because if it wasn't if some alternate it gang, gang, yeah, if it was yeah. actually the Yardies that he thought it was in the first place or something like that, then I could buy into it more. But it's just weird. It's almost as though you're just bring, bringing out the IRA as boogeymen for some reason because that's what we were doing at the time. But it doesn't make any sense with them. It doesn't make any sense with what we know about them now. It's not just crazy. Yeah. What a weird thing to do politically, though, too. I mean, at the time, people were <sighs> suggesting that they were being sympathetic to the IRA or putting, like, a glamorised them. The film absolutely doesn't do that. No. Although, let's be honest, that Pierce Brosnan has given off big dick energy in this film. <laughs> Pierce, <laughs> Pierce Brosnan is like, yeah, he's hot. I get it. <laughs> old, old John Holm in his first film role. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but the fact that they had the IRA at all in 1980. Yeah. That's like... 
unless you have something really serious to say, why would you just don't just that? don't go near it? Just yeah. don't go near yeah. it. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I remember being weird. I remember being quite iffy about that film a few years. ago. another bone home film, wasn't it? Where they're kind of leaning into the whole kind of IRA. It was was it the um, yeah the, the Jet, foreigner uh, the foreigner yeah um, mm. with Jackie that, Chan. Yeah. If anything, that felt too soon. But too yeah, soon we while were, it's actually going on is another level entirely. <laughs> we had some serious concerns about that film. I haven't mm. seen that, but I have seen The Devil's Own. Uh, with Brad Pitt and Harrison Ford. I'm not going back, Tom. We have seen Patriot Games as well. Oh, good grief. Well, at least the IRA were still vaguely portrayed as bad guys in that. Uh, yeah, sorry, uh, so, Scott. Yeah, no, that's that's about all I've got to say. It's a bit of a, a, a bit of a disappointment. I don't think I hated it as much as mm. you seem to do, but I definitely didn't, no, I didn't get a lot all. from it. I close, I just, I was just disappointed. Yeah. I actually enjoyed Bob Hoskins. Buying Bob Hoskins in that role mm. was never the problem. I thought he was actually really pretty good. Yeah. But, oh, I just, it's the whole film was just kind of meh. It so, wasn't, I didn't hate it by any means. There is perhaps like, one thing I take about if she when you said this looked technically fine. I thought this looked a bit television-y. Um, mm-hmm. It didn't look That's great because it me. was originally intended for TV, as I understand it. No, it wasn't. It was originally intended as film, but ITC decided to cut it down mm. from nearly two hours to 87 or 83 minutes and put it on TV because they didn't ah, think it would sell. And that's when they overdubbed Bob Hoskins. Yeah. Of all people, Bob Hoskins with a Wolverhampton accent. <laughs> that clears things um, up. <laughs> And that's when they they took them to court and ended up yeah. um, Eric Idle and handmade films bought Stepping it. Stepping in and bought it, it for 800 um, grand or something, wasn't it? Got cinema release, yeah. yeah no, it's, it wasn't. So, um, weirdly you say that, Scott, I actually thought at the time, and I don't know if it's made of the editing and the making of change, because I got to the end of it and thought, I don't really remember any particularly impressive shots. And, I didn't, yeah. and then I watched the making of this morning. Um, the car bomb thing. The show... They showed lots of bits. Even like the shot of him in the the shower and stuff, and the bit mm. that I, and the burning of the clothes. Which during them watching the film, I thought that doesn't look interesting at all. During the making of, I thought I quite like that shot. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how I've been persuaded, <laughs> but it seems it's like edited version of the edited film. I presume mm. it's some kind of subliminal messaging that's uh, warped your perception because most of those scenes didn't seem particularly interesting to me. I remember seeing one shot looked vaguely interesting. Uh, uh, I remember some scene in reflection when he was in the, the boat at one point, and that was looked. That was the one shot that looked. Oh, someone's actually composed that. Other than that, it felt a lot like people. Is were that just when like he's talking to Charlie from Casualty, and you can see yes. his uh, <laughs> reflection in the glass? Yes, and yeah. that seemed to be the only shot that was composed. The rest of it was more like just people pointing cameras at people. Well, there's uh, there's the interesting angle where the cameraman has been strung upside down on a meat hook with the camera so that you get the <laughs> perspective true. of the guy's getting, getting, getting slung at the that one. Here's, So here's the thing. So I, I'm forgetting that I was the only one who'd actually seen this ahead of time. And we spoke previously about this when we were deciding on this podcast, didn't we, about the fact that I'd found it underwhelming and I would be interested yes. to revisit yeah. it. Again, because as Drew brought up, this is frequently cited as not just one of the best gangster movies, but one of the best British movies yeah. um, and like you say Drew whatever thing it was in Sight and Sound or Empire or whatever and it's rated it was, as like was, the, I think it was 19th best British film in an Empire put in yeah. the BFI did 21st, 21st in the BFI yeah best British film so I'm time, like yeah. okay cool I'm willing to go back to this and see if I was wrong because my first impression of this film whenever I watched it for the first time which would only have been about 5 or 6 years ago probably I say that it's probably more like 10 actually was that I was underwhelmed by it as well and I was very much in alignment with what you're saying I actually enjoyed it a lot more this time. 
But I think I'm enjoying it a lot more in the context of a lot of things that are going on around me. So I, I don't have anything great to say that, uh, th- that will enlighten things more than you've already said. Um, I will in a minute read through just the notes that I made as I was watching at this time, and I'll just read through them sequentially. The thing that I have the biggest problem with, I think, potentially, is that for all that Bob Hoskins can be convincing in the moment, his character still just gives off the vibe of being like the that uncle who was the first one to sort of give you a drink and tell your mum, shut up, he's old enough, let the boy have a drink. He's, and then give He's you, a bit too cheeky uh, chappy at times, I guess. Yeah, and then give you, he's just like yeah. the avuncular uncle, that, and, and then he'd give you 10 yeah, quid yeah. to go to the shop and buy sweets or something and ask, and ask you to get him a packet of fags while he was there, right? So there's that. But then I also sat back and I thought about that afterwards and I thought, well, is that not what's great about British gangster scene? And is that, is that probably not actually more realistic? Because everything we do in this country is crap anyway. We can't even do gangsters <laughs> properly. And the truth of gangsters is probably not the whole Essex boys riding about with shotguns like and, and everybody having a shooter, which is completely an impractical notion in this country even today, never mind 40 years ago. Um, is it probably not just the case that that is the reality of, of probably what it was, that most of these people were just like affable uncles who also just happened to stab people now and again? Um <laughs> It's very possible. I mean, Bob Hoskins himself grew up around yeah. some of those types of people in East End, so I assume he's got something to like base his performance on there. He must do, and I know that, again, from I can't remember if it was that making of documentary that we watched through or if it was just in reading about the film uh, the other day as well, that I think enough comments were made by actual gangsters saying about how close to the truth it felt for them and how much they, how much they recognised the characters they saw on screen in this movie. It probably speaks to something, and I think it does, and it ties into one of the comments I've made further down this list, but I'm just going to read this list to you now. And the first point that I've written down is, don't remember opening with Abadu Taffin soundtrack. And I know Taffin <laughs> yeah. came I know Taffin came eight years later, but I was really surprised to find that the composer for this uh, was not the same guy who composed the music for <laughs> for. Taffin. <laughs> I thought there was going to be this uh, crazy uh, Bronholm link, but there really isn't. Yes, I had um, forgotten up until this moment. Thanks for reminding me. This soundtrack's awful. Oof, I hated it. 100% yes, out yes. of place. 120% out of place. <laughs> yeah, it's... Um, the bit, especially when Bob Hoskins arrives at Heathrow and the music that's yep. playing is like this isn't the gangster music it's yeah. circus this, music really. <laughs> this guy this guy has worked with uh, Al Stewart uh, amongst other musical acts before when I think about Al Stewart I'm like alright oh, okay now the saxophone stuff makes sense I totally get that <laughs> I don't get it in the context of a gangster movie yeah. <laughs> I, I thought stuck about the soundtrack <laughs> that terrible that terrible synth based soundtrack that's there for most of the films yeah. like, no, this is awful and then so Saxophones appeared like, wow, it got worse. Um, I've I've made my comments about saxophones clear, but my feelings about saxophones clear before. All of a sudden, (laughs) yeah, all of a sudden there's like jaunty saxophone half chase movie music pops up. Um, I've also written down, in the Guinness Book of World Records is the grainiest film ever. I don't know that the restoration (laughs) process has done this any favours, not at 1080p. If they give us a 4K transfer of it, which I don't think there is, then you might be able to appreciate the grain, but as it is, it looks like mush for most of the film. Yeah, I didn't uh, notice any green. Oh God, I did certain scenes certainly. Yeah, I, I, well, I didn't notice. notice I, no. I didn't wasn't bothered by green particularly. No, every other establishing shot in this movie appears to have been filmed from a mile away and or massively cropped because it's an advert for chromatic aberration. <laughs> uh, then the next note I've got, Drew, you'll be pleased to hear is, "Oh yes, Charlie from Casualty." I forgot he was in it. <laughs> then I've put, "Is Paul Freeman the ultimate that dude?" Because uh, it wasn't until today that I actually bothered to look up that guy's name, the guy that plays Colin, the guy 
who was stabbed in the swimming pool by by okay. Hop Rosnan. And Paul Freeman's Belloc Invaders of the Lost Ark. He's very much not that guy. I know, but that's. But would you have been able to name him, Drew? Yes, I named him. I knew exactly who it was. He's also the dog, no, the priest in Hot Fuzz. Yes, I know he's the priest, but that's what I mean. He's like the ultimate that guy. I didn't know his name until today when I actually bothered to look it up. <laughs> then I've put down, and I think this is one of the reasons why I think this film resonates at the moment, particularly. I've put even Harold Shand understands the benefits of being an EU member state. <laughs> um, yeah, that bit kind of saddened me to be honest the bit when he's talking about Britain's on the cusp of being this great European state because we've just joined the free market so I'm like yeah. oh god those were the days and it's an advert <laughs> for Thatcherism really but even, since then. even Thatcher understood the benefits of the EU yeah, <laughs> cheers, Thatcher was pro-Europe thanks for reminding me of that Harold um, the <laughs> unexploded bomb in the casino colon how casual do you want to be around five pounds of explosives that you know have been deployed to kill you um, <laughs> when was sarsaparilla a thing in the UK <laughs> The two-gallon tub of it, yeah. You know when they go around to Errol's house, there's like, you know the sort of... Um, it's like a like you, you put it's like screen freezing. Yeah, the 10-litre the ten, the ten bottle of it on Errol's kitchen bunker. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's what I've put, the kind of bottle... Because I couldn't think of the proper word for that kind of bottle and I've put the type you would get screen wash in. Yes. <laughs> Basically like a 10-litre bottle of screen wash, except it's, it's filled with a brand of sarsaparilla and I can't remember what it is. It's like Dawson's or something. I looked it up. You can still buy it in Tesco's, apparently. I would assume that's I noticed the, a regional thing. I noticed the container, but I didn't actually bother looking at the label. I, was, I saw that in the kitchen, but I can't believe that was a drink. It, it was like, I assumed that was like, you know... That Antifreeze, yeah. That must be a super London-centric thing, and I can imagine it's one of those things like Worcester sauce walkers that you only get regionally because uh, I have <laughs> never seen sarsaparilla in a supermarket ever. Um, <laughs> but there you go. You can still buy it in Tesco's, apparently. Uh, look it up, and the same brand as well. Um, <laughs> when Harold's heavies go out looking for information, lads, try and be discreet, aye? After he gives a long table of guns to them. <laughs> and then I've actually made some more serious notes. And I've put what this film captures really well is the sense in which British gangsterism is always going to be the Playmobil to the Mafia's Lego Technic. Uh, <laughs> there's the taint of faded empire and sense of ego we still have as a nation. But at the same time, the acknowledgement that we are so dependent on others and so frankly crap, a Harold can't realise his ambitions of legitimacy made possible by our membership of the EU without the input of the Americans. And I think this is where I think this is where things really start to resonate in a contemporary uh, sense. <laughs> yeah. I've put more fundamentally than that at the level of instinct. I'm just never going to be bored of well-written British gangster movies. I can listen to people saying "Leave it out, Harold," or repeat for the rest of my life. I think also it's interesting. The humour too comes from a couple of directions. So Harold himself's not without a sense of humour and I don't recall from the first viewing of it but I know apparently it's like a really revered line the point at which they're talking about sneaking Colin out in an ice cream van and he says yeah there's a lot of dignity in that going up like a raspberry ripple um, <laughs> He's, he's not without humour himself. And, and another line of work you can imagine him actually being like pretty decent company but you've also got the sense of how pompous the whole London gangster scene is and how these are basically adults essentially still living out playground fantasies only now they've got <laughs> knives and guns. Mm. I just thought you were talking about the, the humour and the language too, mm. Craig. Um, the scene in the end at the Savoy when the, the two weirdly clairvoyant mafia guys are about to leave mm -hmm. and he gives that whole speech which is it's so cringeworthy mm -hmm. uh there's like how great britain's and what britain's give the world you know not just a sodden hot dog or anything like that mm -hmm. it's so so cringeworthy it 
But in the middle of that, he does have that great line about um, talk about a sleeping partner. You two are in a f- Cool. That's really funny. Yeah, he's not. He's, it's a pity he was in the middle of that speech. He's he's a fairly fairly well written character. If I'm being fair about it, and I've put, I've I've said that Hoskins Shand is a quietly compelling character and closer to a favourite uncle. So I've mentioned that already, and certainly more so than the conditioned image you've probably got of a typical gangster. But in fairness, you're also left in no doubt that he's a genuinely dangerous man. Like when he's when he's uh, giving Jeff it in the neck with a broken bottle, I'm not in doubt of that. I didn't find that jarring in the sense that where's this aspect of this character come from? Um, no, yeah, I never failed to buy Bob Hoskins in the role. It's mm. there's everything around him I had the problems with. Well, I've put that. I think his ambitions may be legitimate, but the anger's only ever just below the surface. And you, you can, you know, in the sense you can take the mad lad out of the East End. So I don't. I didn't find him. I didn't find him as unconvincing as yourself. But I still, there is still like well, just a, a layer of abstraction there. Where I just can't see past him being the the avuncular uncle as well. Quick, I said I, I was never not convinced by him. Mm. Oh, did you? Sorry, sorry. Yes. No, I always was convinced yeah. everything around him was the problem. I, mm. I, was, I had no problem with Hoskins in the role at all. And yeah. I totally bought the bit when he lost it and killed Charlie from Casualty yeah. or refused to learn his character or his actor's name. Because of the way he treated Duffy. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's a blast. <laughs> well, the one time he didn't quite manage to rescue that person from underneath the train. Oh, that was a gruesome episode. Um... Is that not every episode? Pretty much, pretty much. Uh, I remember the one in the bit where the houseboat blew up and there were some guys got hot tar poured on them on a building site as well. Good grief. No, I did. I think it's safe to say that I was really sort of, the first time I'd watched this, as I alluded to in the conversation that we had last week or whenever it was, that I was kind of slightly baffled by the reception of this film. Slightly less so now on a second view and I certainly did enjoy this a lot more. But I still don't understand it as the 21st best British movie ever made. I wouldn't... Top 100, oh, right, I'll sit and have a conversation with you, but I don't know that I can be bothered writing out 99 other films or even sort of thinking of what they might be. <laughs> I, I think at that point it becomes irrelevant, but I don't think the top 20 films, British films of all time. Like I say, for me, the biggest disappointment of this film is that Helen Mirren is clearly in sort of low gear um, or, or mid-gear at best. And I just, like you, Drew, I hadn't actually considered it, but what would this film have been if Helen Mirren were the uh, the, the head of this empire? Actually, that's yeah. a much more interesting prospect for me. And if you if we want to so just... go remaking films, let's, cool. This is one that I would actually be on board with. I think you've got a good pitch there, Drew. Yeah, um, it's certainly be better than the... <laughs> the suggested sequel that was actually written for this before yes. it was filmed yes. um, in that he somehow escapes from the IRA at the end of the film and then he has to deal with bad boy Yardies yeah. <laughs> taking over his patch. Yeah. Aye, he must have passed old Kent Road and got a j- get out of jail free card or something <laughs> like that. But, yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I, I didn't dislike the the Long Good Friday this time around. I enjoyed it more than my initial viewing, but I still, I, I don't know that I'm going to be compelled to go back to. It. I think tellingly, Drew, if I'm honest, and I, I, I would wonder if you feel the same about this. The making of was more interesting than the film to me. Oh, vastly so. Mm. Actually, they found that quite entertaining. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, it's kind of squandered opportunity though, because I'm watching this thinking, oh, imagine Helen Mirren says like Helen Mirren in kind of. Like the level of quality performance she gives in like Prime Suspect or something mm. like that, but on the other side of the law this time. Yeah. 
how good would that be? As opposed to, like, her sort of slight dalliances with being an East End gangster as she's Jason Statham's mum in the Fast and the Furious films. Yeah. That was completely <laughs> squandered. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not the biggest fan of Helen Mirren in a sort of day to day way, but I would. I would buy a ticket to that. I'd certainly be far more compelled to watch that than to ever watch something like The Queen again, which I hated passionately. Dodge that one. <laughs> cool. Good old. That will wrap us up for today. If you want to get in touch with us for any reason, you can do. We're on the emails at podcast at fudsonfilm.com or the Twitters at fudsonfilm. So we'll be back uh, soon with another podcast, but until that time, take care of yourself and each other. I'll bid you a farewell. I'm sure my friends will do too. Certainly. Sort it out. <laughs> <laughs>